This is an ABC podcast. Last year, I took the worst flight of my life. What was waiting at the other end made me sick with nerves. It was an interview I'd been trying to arrange for months. An exclusive interview with Nicola Gobbo, one of the most talked-about criminal defence lawyers in Australia's history. Nicola Gobbo had done the unthinkable. She'd represented some of Australia's most dangerous criminals during Melbourne's violent gangland war. Crime barons, hitmen, ruthless drug traffickers. All the while feeding underworld secrets back to police. It's the first and only known time in Australia that a lawyer has worked as a police informer. Her double life had been revealed on the front pages of Australia's newspapers earlier in the year, causing a sort of meltdown in the justice system. Meanwhile, Nicola Gobbo had disappeared. She was in hiding. I had no doubt that many of her former clients would want revenge. It seemed like some people in that world ordered executions as casually as they'd order coffee. And on the plane, I was worried sick that someone might have caught on and might be tracking my movements, that I might be leading someone to her. So I flew to multiple cities and switched planes to try to cover my tracks. I used encrypted emails and messages, and I paid for everything in cash to limit the credit card trail. But I was still worried. Everyone was looking for Nicola Gobbo. Lawyers wanting answers, hundreds of other journalists, and my most pressing concern, half of Melbourne's criminal underworld. But only me and my colleague Josie Taylor had managed to make contact. And now, I was on my way to see her. To begin with, there were just rumours. She was overseas, she was in police protection, she was spotted at a local coffee shop. But then Josie had a breakthrough. Hi, Rach. Hey, Joyce. How's your morning? I work with Joyce at the ABC, and she was one of the few people in the world who had a chance of finding Nicola. Every program at the ABC had contacted me saying, can you help get a line to Nicola Gobbo? And I said, yeah, I'll try, but I can't guarantee it. In fact, it's probably impossible. As a former court reporter, Josie's known Nicola since 2003. She's seen her in court and out at industry drinks. They have a strong professional relationship, and Nicola trusts her. I'd been around long enough that she'd had repeated contact with me and she'd learnt that I would stay true to my word. So Josie passed on our email, asking if we could interview Nicola for a podcast series. It felt like it was just such a long shot, just firing off an email into the blue, into the universe. Will I ever hear back from this woman who is clearly in danger, in hiding? Um, Probably not. And then to see a response from her, and I remember it was a different email replying to the one that I'd sent in a different email address, sitting there in my inbox in bold saying, hello, yes, I'm here. Tentative emails grew into regular text messages. Then she let us record some phone calls. But whenever we tried to pin her down to a date for a proper face-to-face interview, she was never ready. We never really knew if we were wasting our time or if she was playing us. She would just disappear off the radar again and we wouldn't hear from her for weeks. You know, there could be a flurry of contact and then nothing. Then all of a sudden it was on. We agreed to meet in a hotel in a country that was neutral to both of us. 
I arrive first with our cameraman and producer. Even as we're setting up the hotel room for the interview, and as we black out windows and listen for outside noises that might give away our location, I'm still not entirely confident she'll go through with it, or if she'll even show up. But then she arrives, and after months of trying to convince Nicola Gobbo to talk... A set, B set, C set, rolling. She's finally sitting in front of me, ready to spill her story. Phones off. It's just us and a whole closet of skeletons. Nicola Gobbo, real one, location undisclosed. I'm Rachel Brown. This is the second season of Trace, The Informer. In the last season, we investigated the cold case of Maria James. In this season, we're going to investigate the story of Nicola Gobbo. This is not your typical true crime story. It's not the story of an innocent victim, a single case, and a search for justice. It's the story of countless cases. Because what Nicola Gobbo did, and what the police did with her, threatened to bring the justice system to its knees. It's all a joke. A fundamental attack on the criminal justice system. You're talking the mafia, you're talking billions of dollars in drugs that were seized. Nicola was a defence lawyer, but she was secretly helping the other team. She was defending criminals while feeding information to the cops. I had no idea. I had no idea. Is it ethical? No. Questions are now being raised about whether her clients received a fair trial. One man has already walked free from jail after successfully appealing his conviction. Eight men have appeals pending, and more might join them. More than a 1,000 of her former clients might be affected. What we have ended up with is potentially criminals getting out. They're not going to trust the judicial system, so, you know, they'll, they'll, rather than reach for the pen, they'll reach for a shotgun. What we're seeing is substantial miscarriages of justice because of what she has been doing behind the scenes. And don't get me wrong, I don't think we know the full extent of it. But just who is the woman at the centre of this story? The woman who became known as Lawyer X. Nicola Gobbo has been portrayed as a legal temptress. Long blonde hair, low-cut top, big breast, <laughs> very short miniskirt. A siren who double-crossed people and left a trail of destruction. She's been spoken about and reported on endlessly. But hardly anyone has spoken to her. Nicola Gobbo, Lawyer X, Informer 3838. You've been painted in the press as psychologically unhinged, desperate for attention, seduced by the underworld, a dog, promiscuous, you know, sleeping with clients um, and police, um, partying with clients, snorting coke with them, a puppeteer that's brought Victoria's legal system to its knees. Have I missed anything? Um, Killing um, Princess Diana. I haven't been labelled that one yet, but it's coming. The interview we've secured with Nicola Gobbo is the only one she's done since going into hiding. Maybe the only one she'll ever do. My colleague Josie and I finally have a shot at getting to the bottom of one of the biggest scandals in the history of Victoria's justice system. I want to know what really makes a lawyer become an informer. 
What made Nicola Gobbo want to risk her reputation, her career, even her life, to feed information to the police? And how was she allowed to do it, or even encouraged to do it? Did the very organisation entrusted to uphold the law, the police force, end up spectacularly undermining it? In this podcast, I'm going to find out. This is episode one, Nicola. When Nicola Gobbo arrives at the hotel room we've agreed to meet in, she's nervous. But she's also disarming and friendly. Hey. Hi. Hello. You look normal. I hope so. <laughs> you look, look how unprofessional I look. No, you look great. The room is hot. We're all on edge. I'm going to go to the bathroom first. Okay. I'm sick. But is that normal to feel like you're going to vomit? Yeah, don't worry. I, I know what that feels like. When she comes back into the lounge room, she sits down opposite me on one of the hotel chairs. She's wearing a dress in a small animal print and has her bleach blonde hair out. She's not wearing a scrap of makeup even though parts of this interview will be broadcast on national TV. She says she wants people to see her as she is. Despite her nerves, her gaze is unflinching and her voice measured. Um, Are you on the run? Do you mean on the run from... Are you in hiding? Yes. Well, we, as in myself and my two young children, are presently stranded overseas... We are effectively stateless because we have been left in a foreign country in which we have no rights because obviously we're foreigners. We can't obtain residency. Even if we wanted to, we can't. And I have been living like that for most of this year. For a lot of that year, Nicola and I have been in some kind of contact. On some days, she seems scared, depressed and drained, Other days, she'll be full throttle, charismatic, even funny. She can usually find a joke to crack the tension. Even today, when she knows she's going to get a lot of difficult questions. Chin up, boobs out. Some people write off Nicola as an actress. Others see a perplexing enigma. I'm hoping that as we chat, all these apparently contradictory parts of Nicola's personality will start making sense. I still wake up and think, this is... It's almost surreal. I feel, whether it's correct or not, that I have been snookered by Victoria Police, banished from Australia. What what would you say to people who say, well, you know, you did what you did, you made your bed, lie in it? I don't think that anyone, um, including myself, who doesn't have a crystal ball, could have possibly imagined that something that happened 15, 18, 20 years ago... um, could have foreseen that this would occur now. It's just, um, I find myself some days thinking this is just an unbelievable nightmare that there is no end to. The things that led to this nightmare, as Nicola says, kicked off a long time ago. It was a series of events right back near the start of Nicola's career that somehow started all this. We'll get to those events in a moment. But to help understand why Nicola made the choices she did then, you need to go back even further, to her childhood. There have been some sensationalised and inaccurate reports that suggest I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Nothing could be further from the truth. The law is in her blood, 
Her cousin Jeremy is a QC, a senior barrister. Her sister Catherine is a commercial barrister. And her uncle, Sir James Gobbo, was a Supreme Court judge and the 25th Governor of Victoria. But she says her start in life was humble. Nicola's father, Alan, worked two jobs. Her mum, Mary, was a nurse on night shift. My parents were both incredibly hard-working, old-fashioned people. They saved their money to make sure their kids got a good education. My mum and dad made incredible sacrifices to give each of their children an opportunity they hadn't had, which was a private school education for secondary school. Her parents instilled a fierce work ethic in their kids. A school report described Nicola as mature, polite, most reliable and always eager to please. We were often reminded that if we didn't work extremely hard and take advantage of every single opportunity that was made available, we were effectively stealing um, from our parents because we weren't making the most of the situation. It was a high-achieving and well-known family. I certainly had, had no desire as a student to be a lawyer. Um, I actually wanted to be a nurse or a doctor, but um, couldn't. I failed maths and chemistry badly in my secondary schooling. Even when her mum Mary was diagnosed with cancer, Mary continued to work night shift to keep up the school fees. Nicola told me she remembers hearing her mum vomiting, crying, telling her dad that she didn't want to leave him with two young girls to raise without a mum. Her mum survived that cancer bout, but her father Alan was later diagnosed with the same disease and died. Nicola was devastated. Her father had died just at the time when she was trying to work out who she was and what to do with her life. Um, five months into my year 12 year. So I um, was one of those children or young adults who was belligerent and probably a, an enormous um, pain and pest to my mother. Now I can see as a parent myself what a nightmare I would have been at the time because I was heartbroken from losing my dad and rebellious and obviously hormonal, you're a teenager. And, um, uh, and my greatest fear was disappointing my parents. Her dad's death left a void. She says her teachers suggested that she defer the high school certificate and told her mum to consider withdrawing her from school. Instead, she crammed like mad before the exams and proved everyone wrong. Her grades were good, so good she got into Melbourne University Law School, a school that served as the launch pad for former Australian Prime Ministers. The university's motto is Postera Crescam Laude, later... I shall grow by praise. And later, Nicola did grow by praise. She was a perfectionist. And it wasn't just her parents she was afraid of disappointing. But much later in life, she'd discover that trying to keep everyone happy can sometimes just land you in deeper trouble. Decades after she enrolled to study law, Nicola would shake the foundations of the state's justice system. What Nicola Gobbo did is so unusual, so extraordinary, that it sparked a multi-million dollar royal commission. This hearing of the Royal Commission into the Management of Police Informants is now open. Please be seated. 
It was called in late 2018 to look into what the hell had been going on. But when the Commission's gaggle of lawyers looked around, the woman at the centre of it all, Nicola Gobbo, had disappeared. For a moment, it seemed like the inquiry would play out without hearing from her. So we interviewed her. Then, a couple of months later, she was compelled to appear at the Royal Commission from a secret location via video link. So we, ha- we have Miss Gobbo on the line here. Can you hear me, Miss Gobbo? Yes, I can. Through this series, you'll hear bits of Nicola's testimony in that echoey room at the Commission. Yes. Are you going to take the oath or the affirmation? Uh, and the oath. You'll also hear her down distant phone lines as we chat in the lead-up to our face-to-face interview. Well, you know, in a way it's water off a duck's back, Rachel, because so much has been said that's so terribly awful. You'll hear us switch between these different recordings because Nicola revealed different parts of this story on different days, sometimes for complex legal reasons, sometimes because of her mood. The Royal Commission picked up the story from when Nicola went to law school. Some questions. I'm going to go back a little bit um, to uh, the period of time that you were at Melbourne University. Because that's also when she first ran into trouble with the law. This trouble went by the name of Brian Wilson. You swore that you had formed a friendship with a person by the name of Brian Wilson. That's correct. Nicola met Brian during an in-excess gig at Melbourne University in 1993. She says this happened in the context of her seeking an interview with Michael Hutchins, the in-excess frontman, for the student magazine. Anyway, Brian Wilson was doing security for the show and they hit it off. Nicola asked if he'd like to move into the house she'd just bought in Carlton, in Melbourne's inner north, as a housemate. But pretty soon they were dating. Problem was, Brian was a drug dealer and he was about to get busted by the cops. This would lead to Nicola Gobbo's first big interaction with the police. And this first interaction is pretty interesting. So interesting that it was raked over in the Royal Commission. Officer Trevor Ashton told the Commission about the police operation. The gent called Brian Wilson, he was the main target. And obviously I'd I'd suggest strongly there's a bit of surveillance done on Wilson's movements that afternoon. Police put Nicola and Brian's home under surveillance. And when they had enough intel, they pounced. On a Friday afternoon around five o'clock, Police paid Nicola and Brian a surprise visit with a warrant. Mike Holding and Trevor Ashton, officers involved in the raid, told the Royal Commission what happened next. There was like a fairly strong smell of marijuana and there was a 20-litre drum of it, just marijuana head sitting behind the TV. I think through memory he was handcuffed in the lounge of the unit. They also found a small amount of methamphetamine in a cigarette packet in Nicola's bedroom. Purchased April 93, uh, $100, 10 grams. Can you help us with what that means? I would suggest that was the purchase price of methamphetamine at the time. The Royal Commission heard that Nicola then led them to a stash. The two bags of amphetamine. Yes. uh, They were located in a laundry in uh, vents that had been disguised, air vents up in the uh, the walls, um, and they'd been cut and placed in there, and the bags were inside a cavity, one either side of the laundry. Now, obviously, finding a big bag of speed, being a policeman, yep. fairly excited about it, of course, um, to get it. You know, um, that's what we were there that's for. 
Nicola Gobbo was a lawyer in training who'd been found with $82,000 worth of speed in her house. And the police had just found a big bucket of marijuana behind her television. Her legal career hung in the balance. But Nicola seemed relaxed. I found her to be very confident and opinionated. I felt that she thought the process was like a game. Maybe it was a game. Because, as it turns out, five days before the raid, Nicola had told police that she had suspicions about Brian. I do remember that um, that in the days leading up to the police coming to speak to me at Melbourne University, getting a much or having a much better idea of the level of drug trafficking uh, with which he was involved, and and yes, being shocked about it, yeah, and and being frightened. So Nicola says she reported Brian to police. In the end, she was charged with drug possession and use for the meth found in her room. She pleaded guilty and walked away with a 12-month good behaviour bond. She'd escaped a conviction. Lucky for her, because a conviction could have killed her chances of practising law. But her boyfriend Brian Wilson was convicted of drug trafficking and dealt a suspended jail sentence. He moved out for a bit, but a year and a half later he circled back. Nicola let him stay at her house. Not out of romance this time, just pity. He ended up falling out with his mother and I think his brother or brother-in-law and needing somewhere to live and uh, me feeling sorry for him. But she told the Royal Commission she soon regretted it. He was in a very bad way and was using drugs to the extent that he was nothing like the person I'd met however long before it was and he was very violent. So. She dobbed him in. Again. It seems that another ex- uh, a warrant was executed in your house, or at your house, in April of 1995. Correct? Uh, that, yeah, that was on the basis of, or my recollection is that was on the basis of me contacting the police because I needed a way to get rid of him. They found drugs again. Brian admitted they were his. He pled guilty and got a $500 fine. But then... Nicola raised the stakes, agreeing to play a role in Operation Scorn, an undercover operation to catch Brian Wilson in the act. Maybe she saw that he was the reason why she was in trouble initially. I, I'm, I'm not sure. It's a, I suppose, a logical motive that some people have is to, you know, if they, they see someone's responsible for the predicament they're in and they see an opportunity to... Um, you know, provide some information against them. That's not an uncommon situation. Officer Tim Argyll worked on the undercover job. He told the Royal Commission about the role Nicola was set to play in the operation. It effectively involved the um, uh, Nicola introducing an undercover police officer um, to the male that she told us was um, buying, looking to buy or sell drugs. Yep. And the plan was to see whether that undercover police operative could buy or sell drugs from the target. The target he's referring to is Brian Wilson. Tim Argyll says that it seemed like Nicola was sort of into the whole idea of the operation. So into it that she took it upon herself to come up with a fake name for the undercover cop. I think she just plucked a name and we had to run with it. Was it the case that she was really getting into the spirit of this operation and uh, in effect enjoying the process? Um, I think that's a fair 
assessment. The head of the undercover unit decided this 23-year-old was too unreliable to work with. He wrote her off as a loose cannon because she was, quote, making arrangements and not liaising. So the undercover job was cancelled. While all that was going on, Nicola was reaching the end of her law degree. Her highest mark was in legal and professional conduct. She told the Royal Commission that she even considered doing a master's degree, and she wanted to focus on a topic that she'd later become very familiar with. At some point I um, started researching with a view to doing some further study on, ironically, and I know it will sound laughable in a sense when I say this now, but on the relationship between police and informers. She never did do that Masters. She officially became a lawyer in 1997, and she worked for a solicitor whose firm represented some of the most serious players in the world of illicit drugs. This job brought the police back into her life again, and not just because of her court cases. The Royal Commission has heard that her boss was suspected of money laundering, and the cops wanted Nicola's help with their fraud investigation. One cop warned her if she didn't help, her reputation would soon be tarnished by association. I can remember being told that if we throw enough mud, some will stick, so you better get a raincoat on quickly. So she met with detectives a few times. But this investigation petered out too. Nothing came of it, and Nicola got on with her life. Decades later, Nicola was surprised to find out that police had registered her as an informer during this time. She didn't see herself as a police informer back then. The way she saw it, back then, she was just sharing a few crumbs of information, having a few quiet conversations with police officers. But the police obviously saw it as more than that. They'd done the paperwork. They'd registered the young lawyer as an informer, without her knowledge. Not once, but twice when they were investigating her boss, and a few years earlier, when they were investigating her boyfriend. Well, 1995, I don't know who I was informing on when I was cooking chips at the MCG um, and studying full-time, or why you would, why if you were a police officer, why you would register someone for the sake of one person, potentially. If crooks get wind that you're a registered police informer, or if they get hold of the paperwork, your life can be on the line. So Nicholas says signing someone up as a police informer without even telling them is dangerous. Of course it is, but police do it all the time. I'm sure they're still doing it now. Police say that in some circumstances it's proper not to inform someone they've been registered. They say formalising the relationship could scare people away. But Nicholas says police want the dirt and don't care how they get it. These days, Nicola's wary of the police. She thinks the force is ruthless and unaccountable. But when she was in her 20s, immersed in her new job as a lawyer, it seems like she was fascinated and intrigued by police. Nicola was one of the youngest women ever to pass the bar. She became a barrister at the age of 26, in 1998. In court, defending her clients, the cops were the opposition. But after hours, she'd often end up drinking with them. One of the cops she drank with was a drug squad detective called Paul Dale. Paul Dale would become a key figure in Nicola's life throughout the 2000s. At the start of the decade, they were having beers together. By the end of the decade, they were mired in a scandal that would prove to be Nicola's undoing. But back then, it was just a bit of socialising after hours, 
Was she fun to hang out with? Oh, absolutely. He says he remembers Nicola Gobbo being the life of the party. She was very extroverted. Long blonde hair, low-cut top, big breasts, (laughs) very short miniskirts and loud centre of attention. Nicola would regularly socialise with detectives and, according to Paul Dale, cops would regularly drink with their targets. Detectives need to associate with criminals. If you say every detective now needs to wear a uniform, no longer wear a suit or no longer wear plain clothes, don't go in the pubs, don't go to where criminals associate, how are you meant to solve a crime? And where there's alcohol, sometimes there's sex. In the late 90s, Nicola says she slept with both the detectives who registered her as an informer. There was the one from the cancelled undercover sting. He was like a lapdog, like a schoolboy with a crush. Tim Argall told the Royal Commission it only happened once, years after he'd registered her. There was an occasion in about 1997 where you had um, uh, an episode of physical intimacy with her, if we can put it that way. Yes. And then there was another cop who she'd spoken to about the fraud allegations levelled at her boss. Was that a long-standing relationship? No, that was about, um, I would say about six months maximum. This cop, Jeff Pope, was married at the time, and he says they never slept together. He told the Royal Commission Nicola propositioned him. She was, I think, contextualising the fact that she was lonely. Uh, and then uh, came the, the suggestion from her that whether the relationship was going to ever develop into something more personal after that, which I, which I declined. Nicola told the Royal Commission that Jeff Pope was a liar. Generally speaking, what do you say about that? Um, well, he's got him, um, he's just told a stack of lies. I pressed her on this too. Jeff Pope says never. You've well, never he's said. a liar. He is a liar. Why on earth would I admit that publicly mm. if it wasn't true? What possible reason could I have for making that up? A decade after the alleged fling, Jeff Pope signed an affidavit swearing he'd never had a sexual relationship with Nicola Gobbo. By that stage, he was in a very senior role. He was an assistant commissioner, managing the covert services division, which had oversight of informers, including... Nicola Gobbo. It's clear Nicola Gobbo's professional and personal life overlapped. She says it's not exactly uncommon to do things when you're young that don't seem like such a good idea later on. I mean, let's be frank, everyone who has uh, gone to university or gone through their early 20s has done some things that they probably don't think are wonderful looking back, but that's what that's what you do when you're growing up. The Royal Commission's heard of five police officers who she slept with over the course of eight years. Hardly a deluge. Yet sex has become the prism through which many people view Nicola's career. And that can't be said of other lawyers and cops who were blurring similar lines. Nicola Gobbo's relationships did sometimes come into direct conflict with her work as a barrister, and you're definitely going to hear more about that later in this series. But I do sometimes wonder if the sex has distracted people from a bigger story. It's far easier to tell a story about a party girl who brought people undone than it is to interrogate how key parts of our justice system might have failed. 
The late 90s was a great time to be a defence lawyer in Victoria. Business was booming. Drug dealers were marauding through the streets and police were desperate to stop them. Melbourne's infamous gangland war had begun, partly thanks to an ambitious young drug dealer called Carl Williams. He was doing business in Melbourne's suburbs, making money and enemies. Police have named him in the past as a possible target of the underworld war that's been going on down here, and he's refused police protection. On his 29th birthday, Carl was lured to a park in Melbourne's northwest and shot in the stomach by rival dealers. He survived and kept his mouth shut about what had happened. I don't know anything who I was shot by, why I was anything, why you I was shot. You don't know who, who shot you? No, I don't know who shot me. Well, you have your eyes shut at the time? or Yeah, well, I've got no idea really who shot me, it's, you know. Of course, Carl knew perfectly well who'd shot him. He'd get revenge his own way. The bullet that had hit him in the belly was non-fatal, but in some ways it was the most dangerous bullet of all because it started tit-for-tat executions that would claim around three dozen lives in just over a decade. As the gangland war deepened, Carl was on the rise. He would soon become one of the underworld's overlords. And as Carl was on the rise, so was one of the lawyers who represented him, Nicola Gobbo. She was the lawyer Carl's crew would often turn to when they were busted. She specialised in getting people bail. This was her introduction to Melbourne's underworld a world in which she'd soon feel trapped. Over this season of Trace, Nicola Gobbo is going to tell you her side of the saga for the first time. Was she a master manipulator or was she manipulated? This is her story. You decide. I, Nicola Marie Gobbo, born 16-11-72, I give an enduring consent to ABC for them to use any and all material, text messages, emails, voice messages, recordings, anything that I've said to either Josie or Rachel to date in any way that they see fit to tell my story in the event of my untimely death. Season two of Trace, The Informer, is hosted by me, Rachel Brown. My reporting partner is Josie Taylor. Supervising producer for post-production is Tim Roxborough. Our producer is Yasmin Parry. Producer for the 7.30 interview was Chris Gillette. Camera, photos and sound on that interview by Greg Nelson. We get production support from Will Ockenden. Fact-checking and research by Alexander Tai. And our sound design and theme composition was done by Martin Peralta. Additional music by Second Arrow, Brendan Warner, Nicole Carroll, Jacob Richards, Seapelt, Superspy and Martin Peralta. If you like Trace, leave us a review wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to get new episodes as soon as they land. <laughs>